Welcome to your Truth Reveal podcast, helping you experience empowered healing. I'm Erica Marku, and with a master's in counseling psychology, I share with you the power of self-knowledge. I interview helping professionals to explore your hidden physical and mental health potential. This episode is titled Know Your PTSD with mental health occupational therapist and former Marine, Manny Marrero. He was called to fight in the war in Iraq and returned home with crippling PTSD. He received help and transformed. Now he assists others in moving through their similar struggles. Something I want to highlight with PTSD and trauma is that what kept you surviving and alive during the traumatic experience or while you were maybe in an abusive relationship or a war zone, right? Everyone has their kind of war that they've been through in a way. And what kept you safe doesn't translate now that you're in a different scenario. Manny received his master's degree in occupational therapy from Bay Path University in Massachusetts. He's currently an MBA candidate at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. He is a mental health occupational therapist at Cape Cod Healthcare and a yoga instructor. Listen as Manny and I acknowledge the dangerous effects of war and how healing is possible. Hi, Manny. Thanks so much for being on the show. I know that you have your own personal journey with post-traumatic stress disorder. Can you please share your story? I would love to. Absolutely. It's what led me to work in mental health. It really started fairly young. I I grew up with a single mother who struggled with her mental health. She was diagnosed with bipolar in her late teens, bipolar depression, and off and on struggled greatly with maintaining stability while I was young. There were times where I would be a caretaker to her at Mm. seven, eight years old. That's tough. It was tough. It's not what a kid is supposed to be doing. It can actually do great damage to a young child to be parentified at such a young age. But nevertheless, we went through a great deal together. And looking back, it taught me a lot about emotions, how to read emotions and the wide range of emotions that an individual can endure. And the reason why you had to be so good at that was to understand, okay, what mood is mom in? Right. And that instability started to cause a little bit of anxiety in me. And I remember being nine or 10 years old and then feeling an unease, but didn't know what it was. Looking back, that was anxiety. It was stress caused from the instability of her mental health. Then we fast forward. I'm now in high school and it was a rocky road because I, I think, attended about 20 different elementary schools and middle schools until we finally found a place in Massachusetts where we had some stability while I was in high school. And all that moving, was that due to her instability? And I have another question. Did she ever seek treatment? Was she on medication or working with a counselor? That's a great question. So she would be often on medications. And what we see as uh, mental health professionals is that Sometimes people stay on medications for a while and they may get off because they start to feel better. And that's when they can have a relapse with their mental illness. That would happen off and on with my mother and it would cause us to get evicted from the apartment and move 
And I found myself being the new kid constantly in elementary school and middle school, which caused some issues with my confidence in school, with the carryover of learning. And there were times where teachers would say, you know, Manny is a very smart student. However, it seems like he has some difficulties with staying on task and concentrating and paying attention and think about the instability that was happening at my home. How can I ever sit down in a classroom and concentrate on an assignment if I was used to chaos? And unfortunately, teachers were not in tune with that. And I think they missed an area where they could have intervened and maybe provided some resources to my mother and I, but that was never the case. It was always like, you're not paying attention. You can't stay on task. It was your fault. Exactly. Exactly. Looking back, it's an opportunity that was missed by a great number of teachers. My learning was not stable until high school. And that's when I really started to gain an understanding of how my abilities can shape my future. Unfortunately, my grades weren't there because of all the things I experienced as a kid. I didn't have an opportunity to go to college right after high school. I looked at some other options and the military was an option. I had an uncle who I looked up to from a young age who was a Marine. I was always fascinated by his service and his stories and the uniforms. I decided to enlist in the Marines. Begrudgingly, my mother had to sign because I was 17 and she had to co-sign. And she did experience some trauma with my uncle when he came back from Vietnam, struggling with his physical and mental health from the trauma he experienced. She was very hesitant, but I talked her into it. The recruiter talked her into it. I was like, I don't really have an opportunity to go to college, but if I do my four years in the Marines, I can get some college funds. I can get the maturity I need to really take on um, the challenges of adulthood. And I did it. I left for boot camp on September 3rd, uh, 2001. We shipped right to Paris Island, South Carolina, which is an island surrounded by swamp waters with all sorts of reptiles oh, that, boy. Um, <laughs> that are guarding the island. Just to add to right the, the myth and you go in the cover of darkness, you're disoriented. Here's some interesting facts about Paris Island. Marines were first assigned there in 1891, and now they train about 20,000 recruits each year. The island is about four miles long and three miles wide. And Billy Joel sings about Paris Island in his song, Goodnight Saigon, about the Vietnam War. You get to Paris Island and you're immediately greeted by drill instructors yelling at you at the top of their lungs to move fast, run, go here, go there and you don't do anything right the entire three months you're there and you're constantly getting corrected. Really what they're doing is putting you under an immense amount of stress to then get you comfortable to function under stress. I think I was a natural (laughs) at that from from my um, instability. your upbringing. (laughs) Right. We do a great deal of health and wellness checkups, vaccinations and physicals. And then you start training just a week after you get there. Training day number one, they call it, which happened to be September 11th, 2001. And we all know what happened on that awful day. Mm-hmm. That's where I was. It was my first day of boot camp, Paris, wow. Island, South Carolina, training day number one. And I thought that was some sort of drill or part of the stress they're trying to put us under. 
because it didn't make sense that um, oh. all of a sudden everything shut down and we were being attacked with planes and the Pentagon was attacked. And we didn't see footage of this the entire three months we were there because we were secluded from television, mm -hmm. from internet, from phones, everything. But the only communication we had with loved ones was letters, snail mail, and one phone call that we were allowed to make when we first got there. Anyone who had family members in areas that were under attack were able to call their family members. Mm -hmm. Everyone else, you know, get back to training. My understanding is that when September 11 happened, you right. weren't even sure that it was really happening. You thought it was part yeah. of the drill. Initially, yes. Yeah, initially. initially. And after maybe a day or so, it started to really make more sense. And we realized, okay, no, this is real. We can tell by how everyone's carrying themselves and the extra security around the base most things were shut down. Nobody was allowed on. And a week later, we started to see newspaper clippings and letters from loved ones. It became this ominous scenario where it's like, what, what's going to happen now? Our drill instructors gave us the rundown saying, this most likely means that you will be one of the first Marines in this era to go to combat. Oh, wow. And, and they did not sugarcoat it. They said, most likely you will see combat. We will make sure you're trained very well, extra hard. Here I am at 18 years old, oh joined the Marines to better myself, to get some college money, to travel. And the world changed just like that. Now it's beginning of 2002. We were shipped off to 29 Palms in the Mojave Desert in California to mimic desert training for our deployment. Mm -hmm. um, eight months later, I get shipped off to Kuwait with my unit. We stage at the border of Iraq, Kuwait. We're just sitting there in 110 degree heat all day long, training and waiting for something to happen. Around March of 2003, Bush came on the news and said, we're going to go to war with Iraq. And I was already at the border at that time, young 18-year-old, fresh out of high school, uh, not, not knowing what's going on. We were given the word to go into Iraq and push through all the way to Baghdad. And that's when I experienced a great deal of stress, intense combat, getting shot at constantly. I was one of the drivers of this big truck. The entire time driving this truck with... 15 Marines in the back, towing a cannon. I thought I was the number one target. You take out the driver, I'm gonna get hit by a sniper. It was an intense fear I had the entire seven months I was there. What that does to someone's body and brain is so detrimental. Yeah. We're not designed to be under that much prolonged stress. Ideally, we would be exposed to that level of stress and then there's recovery time. But yes. in your situation, it was sustained. You said it was seven months. Is that right? Yes. It, it was intense searching and skirmishes and, and firefights. I was essentially right behind the recon battalion. The tip of the spear, I was in the front line, um, really, in, in the mix. Mm -hmm. And it was... It was nothing like what you see in the movies or on the news. When you're in it, it's mass chaos and confusion. Mm -hmm. Nothing makes sense. You don't know where you're getting shot from. You kind of don't know what's really happening in the moment. And you're, you're reacting to the training you received. They say it's the reason we train so much is there's no time to think. When you think, that's when you can hesitate. That's when you may not come back alive. It's something that causes so much confusion and stress. 
And then there are periods of boredom. But with that boredom, you're not really relaxed. Oh, no. You just know something is right around the corner. Because something could happen at any time, right? Yes. So to me, the boredom was almost a little scarier than when we were in action. Because you knew something was going to happen. However, you didn't know when or how or what. And nevertheless, it, it would. After seven months, we flew directly back from Iraq on a commercial flight to San Diego. Now, I think this is important to mention because in past wars, troops came back usually on ships and they had a little bit of a break in between coming back from extreme battle and coming back to the States. A little bit of time maybe to unwind, to talk about things, to reflect, to relax a little bit. We were flown, uh, I think it was 23-hour flight, directly, one quick stop, and now we're in Southern California. Think about 23 hours ago, I was in a combat zone. Now I'm in San Diego. Mm -hmm. That's a huge shift. Right. And meanwhile, my brain was still wired for combat. My body was still wired. That's when things started to get difficult to handle because I'm driving in the highway and I look at my speedometer and I'm going 90 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my goodness. My body was seeking adrenaline. My brain and body were thinking it was in combat. I was using the things that kept me alive in a war zone, using them in, in a place that was relatively safe and that can cause a great deal of dysfunction. Yeah. The aggression that we're taught to use, we're taught to drive as fast as possible down the middle of the road for safety. We're taught to be hypervigilant. So all these things. Well, you're taught to be in fight or flight at all times and to just turn that switch off. I don't know if that's possible. It, it's not. Unless there's awareness, unless there's awareness. Something I want to highlight with PTSD and trauma is that what kept you surviving and alive during the traumatic experience or while you were maybe in an abusive relationship or a war zone, right? I've, everyone has their kind of war that they've been through in, in a way. And what kept you safe doesn't translate now that you're in a different scenario. The hypervigilance, the aggression, the freeze portion, the fight, the flight, all of those things don't translate to a healthy, predictable, structured routine. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to notice these things that were once beneficial are not beneficial anymore. And they're getting in the way of my relationships. And you give a great definition of PTSD. Can you share that? Absolutely. PTSD is a natural response to unnatural events. And the unnatural event for me was being in a combat zone. The responses I had of hypervigilance, nightmares, being on edge, seeking adrenaline, like driving too fast, are the natural things that are happening due to the unnatural events that I experienced. Now I needed to learn how to live more in unison with my life so I can be a healthier individual because that wasn't working out well for me. It's helpful for people to understand that there's sometimes a shame and guilt with PTSD. Like it's my fault. I, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't be doing these things or repeating these patterns. And that can keep an individual from seeking help, from understanding what's happening on a deeper level. What I see from people and friends that are still struggling with their PTSD is they're not taking the time to be kind and gentle mm -hmm. with themselves mm -hmm. and understand what's truly happening. 
and it's a natural response to what you experience. Mm -hmm. But there's help for that. Right. And in your own personal journey, you were back in San Diego. You were returning as a civilian at that point and felt like you were drifting. And that's when you started self-medicating with alcohol. Yes. And that's a very common occurrence. I found myself having difficulties with managing and coping with my stress and anxiety and the nightmares. I started to self-medicate because it took the edge off and it made me forget about certain memories. And it became a slippery slope where I started to need it more and more. And that self-medicating led to me being dependent on that as a medicine. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't seeking help for my PTSD at the time. We were conditioned to suck it up, keep going, not talk about any sort of weakness. In the military, there is this culture of mental health being seen as weak. Specifically, in my experience, that's what it was. You didn't talk about PTSD. You didn't talk about nightmares. You didn't talk about anxiety. You just showed up for work. And and put your head down and did what you needed to do. What's interesting to me about listening to you say that, I know we're talking about combat. Gosh, that just seems to be the message that society gives so many men in general, that they're not going to talk about the difficulties, the anxiety or the depression, whatever it is. It's just go to work and keep your head down and keep going. But that's detrimental, I believe. Yes. As we know, when you suppress, those emotions don't go anywhere. Those memories don't go anywhere. They just manifest as addiction, maybe um, anger, aggression, depression. They manifest in ways that we can see and ways that we cannot see. The more we suppress, the more we suffer in silence. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Where men, we are conditioned to show up to work, do what you need to do. What do you mean about mental health? I was taught not to cry as a young oh, boy. Oh, sure. Yeah. I was a sensitive kid. And when I would cry, I was made to believe that I was doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me. That carried my guilt of feeling emotions, of being vulnerable, and led me to self-medicate and to mm-hmm. suppress and to suppress. It came to a point where I was ruining um, a lot of relationships in my life. I wasn't thriving. I was working dead-end jobs and getting fired or not showing up. I failed out of a community college two or three times. I was in rough shape, and it was all stemming from the self-medication and not dealing with my mental health. Mm-hmm. Just suppressing and hoping it just went away. And what was the turning point for you? That's a great question. The turning point for me was my wonderful now wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. She was in psychology courses at San Diego State, learning a great deal about mental health and trauma and PTSD. And she would mention to me, I really think you have PTSD. You're showing all the symptoms and you're having nightmares and you're hypervigilant. And she showed me a list of PTSD symptoms and I identified with every single one of them. There you go. I took that in, but I I sort of procrastinated a little bit with it. I thought I, I can handle this on my own. There was one night where I was drinking alcohol and I crashed my car and that was the turning point. Because in that moment, luckily, I didn't hurt anyone else and I wasn't badly hurt. 
but it was a wake up call and saying, if I continue like this, I'm going to die prematurely Mm -hmm. and I'm going to leave behind a lot of sad family members and friends. Mm -hmm. And this is not the way to live. I wanted to live differently at that point. I was tired and I finally said, I need help. That's where my life started to change for the better. I went to therapy, listened to my therapist. A lot of what she was saying didn't make sense at the time, but I did it anyway. Well, and it's new information. If you've never been in counseling before, that's a big step. Learning these life skills and having that level of self-awareness, it's a big educational process. Yes, yes. And learning can be challenging. Learning is uncomfortable by nature. It challenges what you think you know, and it teaches you what you don't know. At the time, I also stopped self-medicating. I mm-hmm. said, this cannot, this cannot go on. I mean, this is also part of the issue. I started to feel my feelings to understand what anxiety felt like in my body. What shows up is tension in my jaw and in my shoulders. It shows up as a racing heart and tightness in my chest. And my therapist was wonderful. She taught me ways to decrease my anxiety through some diaphragmatic breathing, deep breathing, muscle relaxation. She suggested I get massages, practice self-care, things that were foreign to me Mm -hmm. again. There was no self-care before I went to therapy. There was no kindness and compassion toward myself. It was a lot of self-criticism, just keep pushing through, and that wasn't working. It's crucial for an individual to learn these practices, self-care, kindness and compassion towards the self. Learn about how PTSD or depression, anxiety, any mental illness appears in your life because it's a little bit different in each individual. I want to take a moment to talk about Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, on homecoming and belonging. We have a strong instinct to belong to small groups defined by clear purpose and understanding. Combat veterans who come home miss the incredibly intimate bonds of platoon life. The loss of closeness that comes at the end of deployment may explain the high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder suffered by military veterans. Combining history, psychology, and anthropology, this book explores what we can learn from tribal societies about loyalty, belonging, and the eternal human quest for meaning. Tribe explains why we are stronger when we come together. To purchase this book titled Tribe, go to yourtruthreveal.com slash store. For more learning, Download free guidance on my website, yourtruthrevealed.com slash listen. Please subscribe and add a rating and review at Your Truth Revealed on Apple iTunes. There are also great resources in the show notes. Tune in for episode 40 is the continuation of this interview with Manny Marrero. We as a society can start to understand that every human has their battle that they're fighting. And if we show kindness and empathy towards one another, we can start to live more in unison as a community instead of a fragmented society. I'm Erica Marcoux. Thanks for listening.